Tisha B'Av, which starts in just a short while, is a day of Avelus, a day of mourning for the Jewish people. The entire Jewish people mourn the Churban, the destruction of the first Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the second Beis Amigdash, other tragic events that occurred on this date. It's a day of mourning. Just like individuals, God forbid, go through a process of mourning, of Avelus. But there's a very big difference between the experience of Avelus, of mourning for an individual who, God forbid, has lost a family member, and the Avelos, the mourning that the entire Jewish people is going through tonight and tomorrow. Rav Yosef Salvechik explains that Avelus Chadosha, the mourning for someone who has just recently passed away, personal mourning for someone, God forbid, that passes away. That's an experience that is very real. It's immediate. Something horrible just happened. And our process of mourning and grieving is instinctive. It's immediate. It's emotional. The process of Avelus Yeshona, of mourning something that happened 2,000 years ago, is a very different process because we're removed from it. None of us ever experienced the Beis Hamikdash being in existence. And there is no instinctive, natural outpouring of grief. The Rav, Rav Salavechik, explains this is what is meant in the line of the Haftorah that we will read tomorrow from the prophecy of Yirmiyo, the prophet Jeremiah. And we read this tomorrow morning in the Haftorah. This is what God, the God of hosts, says. His bonernu vikiru lamakonernos usvoena. Pay attention and invite or summon the hired female mourners. At the time of Yirmiyo, if a person was in Avelis, if there was a funeral, you would hire women who would sing mournful tunes to set the mood for a funeral. And the prophet Yirmiyo says that we need to bring those women, we need to bring those people to help us mourn because we don't know how to do it on our own. It's not instinctive. We need assistance, we need direction. How do we mourn tonight and tomorrow? And the instruction is critical because, and we've been discussing this numerous times over the last three weeks, it's very easy to say the words. And it's very easy to go through the behaviors. But that is insufficient. 
Rav Salvechik explains that the kinos, the poems of lamentation that we say tonight and tomorrow, and the entire experience, but let's just take the kinos in particular, those are prayers. And like prayer in general, it is avodah It is a service to God that has to come from the heart. It must be emotional. It must be an experiential feeling. And therefore we need help in order not just to do Tisha B'Av, but to feel Tisha B'Av. Tomorrow morning on Tisha B'Av morning, we say kinos, these intricate poems of mourning and sadness, we say about 45 paragraphs. Most of them are about the Hurban, the destruction of the temple. One of them concerns the torture and death of the Asara Haruge Malchus, the ten martyrs, which is similar to a prayer section that we say on Yom Kippur. We remember Rabbi Akiva and the others who were martyred, ten martyrs. One of them is about the burning of the volumes of Talmud that took place in Paris. One of them is about the Holocaust. Four of them, more than any other event except for the destruction of the temple, four of them concern the Crusades, the persecution of the Crusades during the 12th century. And we need to understand why the Crusades, of all of the different persecutions that have befallen the Jewish people, why the Crusades figure so predominantly in our Tisha B'Av experience, when other major events are not even mentioned. The expulsion from Spain is not mentioned. Blood libels. Chmielanski uh, uh, pogrom in Poland, which killed many, many more people, is not mentioned. Only one, as I, mentioned, as I said before, concerns the Holocaust. The first crusader attack on Jews happened in the town of Speyer. That's the subject of one of these four kinos relating to the Crusades. In that attack, 10 Jews were killed. Now, it's terrible. The loss of any life is terrible. But compared to the Holocaust, compared to the Spanish Inquisition? Why are the Crusades so prominent on Tisha B'Av? So I'm grateful to Rabbi Ezra Schwartz for an essay that he wrote that presents two answers to this question, one from a father, the other from his son, the son is Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik. His father is the Rav, Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, a blessed memory. Both answers hold important lessons for us in how we experience the unfolding of Tisha B'Av tonight and tomorrow. 
Dr. Chaim Salvechik writes that the Crusades represent the last time that the Jews of Ashkenaz were surprised by their persecution. Following the Crusades in the 12th century, the Jewish history of Ashkenaz was written in blood rather than ink. Following the Crusades, he writes, we went from persecution to persecution, from blood libel to allegations of well poisoning and host desecration, from pogrom, from pogrom to pogrom. Our lives were constantly at ill ease. We never felt secure. Promises made by kings and governors almost always rang hollow. Even the Holocaust, still in its own category of scope of cruelty and suffering, but at the same time, it was the culmination of a thousand years of European anti-Semitism. The Crusades were different. And it was this feeling of surprise that the Jews felt on being attacked during the Crusades. The sudden and unexpected loss of security brought on by the Crusades that stands out as comparable to the Churban, to the destruction of the First Temple. Because there too, the Jewish people were completely surprised to wake up and see that the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, had been lit a fire and was destroyed. People couldn't understand how God's house could be destroyed. The prophet Yermio, Jeremiah, tried to warn them. He said, Don't listen to the false prophets. Lamor who say to you, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem Hema. It's God's house. It's God's house. It's God's house. It can't be destroyed. You have this Meshuggan, a crazy person, Yermio, saying that be careful because the base of Midrash is going to be destroyed. It's a, he's crazy. It's impossible. It's God's house. By definition, God's house can't be destroyed. And Yermio says, don't listen to these false prophets who keep yelling, it's God's house, it's God ha God's house, nothing's going to happen. But these false prophets were louder and somehow more credible. And they claimed, the false prophets claimed, that Yermio was a heretic. God's house can't be destroyed. And they yelled, no, Yermio is the false prophet. Don't believe him. But then it happened. As Yermiyahu had prophesied. And the people were in shock. The people were surprised. It was sudden. It was unexpected. Because the people that they were listening to told them, it couldn't happen. Now, this understanding can provide an answer to a famous question for which there are several important answers.
we observe Tisha B'Av on the ninth day of Av. Tonight and tomorrow is the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av. The Talmud tells us that the actual burning of the building occurred on the 10th of Av. The Talmud says that the building was lit a fire late in the afternoon of the 9th of Av, but it burned on the 10th. The actual destruction of the building occurred mostly on the 10th of Av. So the Talmud says, why do we fast on the 9th of Av? It would make more sense to fast on the 10th of Av because that's when the destruction happened. So the Talmud says, because the 9th of Av is Aschalta de Puranusa. It's the beginning of the destruction. Okay, that just begs the question. Why is the beginning of the destruction the day that we mark and not the day where the main destruction took place. Because the main blow of the destruction of the temple was the surprise. It was the unexpected eventuality that it could be destroyed. The shock, the uprootedness, the dissembling occurred at the beginning when they saw it happen on the 9th. For the first time in over 800 years, Jews were living with uncertainty. Are we supposed to be in Israel? Is God supposed to be open and accessible to us? No one had questioned that for centuries. And all of a sudden, it was uncertain. Since the Crusades, we have not suffered that type of unexpected shock. In numbers, in scope, in cruelty, Crusades were outdone many times since but not in this element of shock and disbelief and uncertainty. Even a thousand years later, the Crusades still connect us to a specific and unique aspect of the destruction of the First Temple, especially today. Like the Crusades, like the shock of the destruction of the first temple. We are going through this pandemic now, and it's not just, God forbid, the death and the illness and the danger and the worry about infection. All of that is terrible. But sadly, that happens. People get sick. People die. But this, for most of us, this is new. This is historic. Living with uncertainty.
How long will this pandemic last? Who will fall? What do we do to protect ourselves? It's all uncertain. Our lives, where we assume that, that most of us are healthy and will stay that way, that's over. And in its place, we live with uncertainty. When will we see our children? When will we hug our grandchildren? How will we even recognize when it's better? The four kinos about the Crusades speak directly to us as they have not for a thousand years. Because what we are going through now, lives uprooted by uncertainty, is precisely what happened when the destruction of the first temple occurred. And the Crusades connect us to that. We should, through the bridge of the Crusades, be able to connect personally with experience and with emotion to the Khurban like never before. That's the first answer given by Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik. Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik gives a different answer, focuses less on history and more on Torah, the nature of how we experience Torah. Now, what I'm going to share will contradict some stereotypes that many of us hold, which is part of the impact of this answer. In the 12th century, France and Germany were the centers of Ashkenazic Jewry. Torah learning and Torah living flourished in these centers. Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchak, the great commentator, was the greatest of that era. He wrote works before the Crusades, and he wrote works after the Crusades that we continue to study till this day. After the Crusades was the era of Tosvos, the Academy of Advanced Scholars, and the era of the Rishonim, the early commentators. Great Torah scholarship that is studied till this day. So, if the Crusades did not result in gigantic loss of life, relatively speaking, and did not eradicate Torah, why focus on the Crusades on Tisha B'Av? Rabbi Salvechik explains, the Crusades caused a shift in Torah study, not in quantity, but in quality, in geography. The greatest destruction wrought by the Crusaders was among German Jewish communities, 
while those who survived were largely the French Jewish communities. And there was a difference between the quality, the style of German Torah study and practice and the style of French Torah study and practice. And this is where our stereotypes may get confused. Because Rabbi Salvechik explains that in the 12th century, the German school of Torah was more emotive, more emotional, more poetic. A major part of German Torah writing was piyutim, religious poetry, beautiful, ecstatic, mystical, emotional. Among French Torah scholars, that was absent. In its place was a more rigid analysis, pointing out contradictions between one passage of the Talmud and another and providing brilliant academic solutions, masterful, intellectually stimulating. The Jews of France expressed Torah of the mind. The Jews of Germany expressed Torah of the heart. The German school, the German approach to learning Torah and living Torah was decimated by the Crusades. We emphasize the Crusades on Tisha B'Av because their destruction changed the nature of Ashkenazic Jewry. The emotion, the passion, the emphasis on experience was muted by the attacks of the Crusades. Ironically, being able to experience Tishba of with the heart, not just with the mind, is more difficult for us because of the Crusades. With these four paragraphs of the Kinos that we say tomorrow, we try to remind ourselves what we lost qualitatively as we apply ourselves more diligently to try to reclaim it. Lastly, I want to build on a theme I have mentioned before. This is also from Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, as explained by Rabbi J.J. Schachter. Tisha B'Av has a special prayer, a special paragraph that is added to the Amidah, to the Shmona Esrei, to the standing prayer. All special days in the Jewish calendar have a special paragraph that is added to the Amidah, to the Shmona Esrei. On Yom Tov, we add the paragraph of Yala V'yavo. Rosh Chodesh, we add the paragraph of Yala V'yavo. On Hanukkah and Purim, we add the paragraph Al-Hanisim. For Tisha B'Av, we have a paragraph. It's a prayer. 
Nachem. And the paragraph starts like this. Nachem Hashem Elokeinu Esavele Tzion Vesavele Yerushalayim. Console, Lord our God, the mourners of Zion and the mourners of Jerusalem. And then the paragraph ends with the bracha, Baruch Ato Hashem, Blessed are you, God, Menachem Tzion Uvonei Yerushalayim. You who console Zion and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the paragraph of Nachem. That is the special paragraph that we add to the Amidah on Tisha B'Av. Now, the earliest version of this prayer is in the Talmud, it's in the Gemara, but there in the original source, the first word is Rachem. Our version has a different form of the same word, Nachem. You should be able to tell just in hearing it. The two words are related, they're connected, two different forms of the same word, Rachem versus Nachem. Why does our version change from the original to say Nachem instead of Rachem? What's the difference in the meaning, in the implication of these two forms of the word? Let me ask a second question. On all the other special days, Yom Tov, Rosh Chodesh, Hanukkah, Purim, on all the other special days where we add a paragraph to the Amidah, we add that paragraph to all of the prayers. Ma'ariv at night, Shachris in the morning, Mincha in the afternoon. For every Amidah, we add whatever the special prayer is for that day. Nachem is added not tonight, not tomorrow morning. It's only added tomorrow afternoon at Mincha, the afternoon service. Very strange. Why, if we have a special paragraph, do we not use it for all three prayers on this day, only for the afternoon prayer of Mincha? So let's go back to the first question. The word Rachem, the origin, in the original version, Rachem means have mercy, have compassion. Make sense? Nachem is related, but it means console or comfort. Nachem is what you say to a mourner. And Rabbi Yitzchak ben Moshe Vienna, who authored the famous work Or Zarua, he explains that Tisha B'Av tonight and tomorrow during the day, we are like an onane, God forbid. We are like a mourner who has suffered a tragic loss before the funeral takes place. Kamisha meso muta lefanov, like one who's God forbid, family member deceased is lying in front of them. We've quoted that line before. In that state, before the funeral occurs, consolation, comfort is premature. It's inappropriate at that point. And so we do not say the paragraph of Nachem tonight or tomorrow. 
But tomorrow afternoon, at Mincha, it's like after the funeral. It's like during the Shiva. During Shiva, we say to a mourner, Hamakom Yenachem Eschem, Besochshara Veleitzion Virushalayim, may God console you among the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And notice how similar that line is to the line in Nachem, and it's on purpose. Nachem Hashem Elokeinu Yerushalayim. Console God, the mourners of Zion and the mourners of Jerusalem. The distinction between tonight and tomorrow morning versus tomorrow afternoon is based on the passage of the Talmud that we discussed just a few minutes ago. The Talmud says that late in the afternoon on the 9th of Av, the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, was set afire. And it burned mostly on the 10th. Now earlier, we discussed the question, so why is the fast day on the 9th and not the 10th? That we discussed earlier. But now, let's focus our attention on the irony from what we said before. Because earlier we said that the fast is on the 9th of Av because setting the building on fire late in the afternoon of the 9th of Av was the worst part of the destruction more than the actual burning of the building, which took place on the 10th of Av. It was the worst moment. But now, the Arzarua teaches us that at Mincha, in the afternoon, it's as if the funeral is over and it's time for consolation. It's time for comfort. And we say, Nachem, comfort us, Hashem. And by the way, at the time of Mincha, other leniencies start to be applicable in the afternoon. For example, tonight and tomorrow we have the practice that we sit low to the ground like mourners. Tomorrow afternoon, we get up, we sit in a regular chair. Tomorrow afternoon, we're allowed to go to work, even though it's preferable not to go to work, but we're allowed to go to work in the afternoon. Men put on tefillin, not in the morning, but they do in the afternoon because tefillin are called pe'er, an adornment. Putting on tefillin is a mitzvah that gives joy. It's inappropriate in the morning when we are mourners like before the funeral. But at mincha in the afternoon, we put on tefillin. So what is the status of the ninth of Av in the afternoon? Is it the worst part of the day? Or is it the best part of the day? Almost every year, Rabbi Soloveitchik would emphasize the following insight. There's a passage in the Medrash that comments on a verse in Tehillim, in Psalms. There's a paragraph in Tehillim written by David Amela, King David, which foretells the Churban, foretells the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Mizmar la Asaf, a song of Asaf. O oh God, nations have come into your 
dwelling place. It's about the destruction of the temple. So our rabbis in the Medrash ask, if you're describing the destruction of the temple, the Chorban, why do you start with the words Mizmar? Mizmar is a joyous song. Shouldn't say it's a joyous song. You should say it's a lament, it's a dirge, it's crying. Why say Mizmar that indicates that it's joyous? And the rabbis give the following answer. They answer with a parable. There was once a king, and the king had a son that he loved very much. And the king built a beautiful room for his son. And then one day, the son misbehaved. He did something very bad. And the king destroyed the room that he had built for his son. At that moment, the son's teacher, the son's mentor, who loved this young man very much, at that moment, he began to play a beautiful song. And people said to him, why are you playing this beautiful, joyous song when the room of your close friend, this young man, the prince, his room was destroyed by his father, the king, in anger? And the teacher, the mentor, said, when I saw the king become enraged with his son, I was worried that he would harm his son. Now that I see that the king has exhausted his rage in destroying the room, I know that at least his son will survive. When the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, because of the sins of the Jewish people, what did the building do wrong? What did the stones do wrong? They didn't commit any sins. It was the people that committed sins. And in fact, during the day, it was unclear whether God's anger would manifest itself in the destruction, God forbid, of the Jewish people or just the building itself. And late in the day, when the building was set afire, on the one hand, it was the worst moment, the shock, the surprise, the uncertainty. But ironically, the same moment was also a relief because it meant that God had decided to exhaust his rage on the building. In the words of our sages, Shafach HaKadosh Baruch Hu Al HaEitzim Val HaAvonim God expressed his anger on the bricks, the stones, the wood of the building. But he did not express that anger against his people Israel. The Jewish people survived. And therefore, it's paradoxical, it's ironic that the moment that is the worst pain of the destruction is also the moment when the strictures become lessened, when it's possible to be comforted, when we say the paragraph of Nachem. And that's why the word is Nachem, 
not rache, because it is words that are being said to a mourner at the moment when it is possible to provide comfort and consolation. And that's why it's only at the mincha prayer, late in the afternoon, when this ironic moment occurs that is both the worst and the most promising for the future. That's why our sages tell us that the seeds of redemption are sown on the ninth of Av. And so the famous words of the Talmud that I have shared with you before, they are not just a promise, but they are a description. Our rabbis in the Talmud tell us, call Hamis Abel al Yerushalayim, Whoever mourns for Jerusalem will merit seeing her rejoice. Those who mourn for Jerusalem will merit to see her rejoice. Because it is through the mourning from which the redemption will occur. May it come soon for all of us.